0: Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining exploration. I just and to ener- talk a little bit about uh, indigenous constitutional recognition. Those two With Larissa Barrent, it's a fresh view coming on. on ABC Radio. Part of the challenge too is that many stolen generation survivors that we talk to and work with are so so acutely aware of how their experiences continue to affect them in their physical health, in their social and emotional well-being, and also how they see it ripple down the generations through their descendants and they're really keen to be able to stop that transmission.
1: 15 years on from the National Apology to the Stolen Generations. This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Berendt. This past week marked the 15th anniversary of the National Apology to the Stolen Generations by former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. The apology was in recognition of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children removed from their families as a result of government policies aimed at assimilating the Indigenous population into the wider community. From the mid-1800s to the 1970s, children were placed in institutions of foster care with non-Indigenous families, disconnecting them from country and culture. The trauma and loss caused by these removals has had an intergenerational impact that continues to affect many First Nations people and their communities today. Over the next couple of weeks, we will be bringing reflections on both the national apology and Indigenous child protection more broadly. Joining me now is CEO of the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Child Care, or SNAKE, Catherine Little. Associate Professor at the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research, Dr. Paul Gray, and CEO of the Lowitcher Institute, Janine Mohammed, Catherine, looking back over the last 15 years, what are your reflections on the national apology? I
2: think at the time it was so significant and we had not all that long ago lost my grandfather. He would have cried that the government had finally fessed up and said, we did something wrong, you know, he used to say that to us, he used to, you know, look us in the eye and say, how could you ever be that mean? How could you ever be that mean that you take a child away from its mother? And so I reflect on that. The other thing I reflect on was how I felt about how people in the room behaved at that time, and how they turned that while well, there was that really good, the goodness of coming forward and admitting that the government policy had done something so horrific to our people and understanding what that would mean for the people who had been taken away but then the pain of seeing people turn their back on that suffering i can't believe that you know we're talking about 15 years ago and even then people could be so cruel that they would turn their back on something that was so painful 15 years on i look at it and i think we've
1: seen growth we're seeing politicians who turned their backs say we did the wrong thing so that is a good thing Janine, what are your memories of the day? Where were you and when you look back now, uh, what are your thoughts?
3: Well, it's hard to believe that it's 15 years have passed, really. I was on the banks of the River Torrens, so uh, in South Australia. I was with my three little girls and I think my reflection on what if this had happened to me, and it was only a few generations ago before me, that this was absolutely the policy of the day. With many, many others you know watching Prime Minister Kevin Rudd give a brave delivery of the apology, and there was palpable emotion that day. We all knew it was a special day, people were crying, people were joyous, we had discussions with complete strangers you know standing next to us non indigenous Australians. They were learning for the first time and they were thankful about learning about this true and dark history of Australia. And, you know, for many Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples, including some of my family members, it was the start of a path to healing, feeling heard. It was the beginning of truth telling. And of course, the truth was setting us free. So, so, yeah, I think the discussions that were had was that we need to really understand the impact of deliberately removing children from their families. You know, it was a social policy of the day and it has been devastating for our people, it caused immeasurable loss and disruption to cultural continuity and a sense of identity. And what I heard also yesterday is that there's no silver bullet and the apology did not fix everything, but people did feel validated that this part of our history wasn't being swept under the rug anymore. And the healing foundations yesterday made some amazing calls for healing programs, you know, trauma-informed therapy for the whole family, which is like the Veteran Affairs card. It'd be similar card afforded to the stolen generations and the survivors of that and their families. But of course, on a very personal note, I am the CEO of the Lowitie Institute, and it's an ever-present theme, of course, our namesake Dr. Lowitch O'Donoghue was a very prominent member of the Stolen Generation, and she was removed from her family at the age of two and not reunited with her mum until she was 33. As well as that devastating and shocking act of cruelty, she forced another trauma of having to prove her story to the media, and she was thrust into an absolutely nasty national debate over the circumstances of her removal. And of course, this is the experience of many members of the stolen generation.
1: Thank you. I'm going to dig into a lot of those issues you two have just raised, but I just want to bring Paul in now and ask you, Paul, where were you when the apology was made and what are your reflections now of that moment and looking back over the last 15 years?
0: I have a very clear memory of being in the upstairs conference room uh, of a CSC as part of the New South Wales Child Protection System. I had just started as a fresh-faced young Aboriginal intern psychologist, and so I was sitting in this room with other child protection workers, listening to Parliament and obviously the, the delivery of the apology. And one of the key things that I remember is the my personal sense of optimism about the apology that we we finally had this very clear acknowledgement of the harm and and a promise to do things differently. And one of the lines that has always stuck with me across those 15 years is that promise for new solutions where old approaches have failed. And and so I was really hopeful that, that we might have turned a corner. But then at the same time, like, it finished and all around me, we just went back to work. The other
1: reflection that I think runs through all of your comments is that at least the apology was a time when the conversation changed. Catherine, from your point of view, and I just note that Janine had mentioned how, you know, people have had their experiences questioned, had their experiences questioned before the apology. From your perspective with the work that you do, how have you seen the conversation, the awareness and the education around the Stolen Generations change over the years?
2: You know, one of the most extraordinary conversations I had as we were leading into the apology was with a news director. You know, I was working in media at the time and all my peers were in media. And he said, is it true? Did this actually happen? And I couldn't believe it. I truly couldn't. I, I sort of looked at him as, you know, really confused and saying "What do you mean? Is it true?" Because as an Aboriginal person, like any Aboriginal person could tell you we grew up with these stories, but we didn't only grow up with the stories. We grew up with those behaviours, right, like not not being too loud in public or uh, our family was always you had to have good shoes because you don't want people looking at your shoes because they're going to take you away if they think your shoes aren't good enough. Um, that fear of the white cars, that fear of truancy, um, the fear of intervention. So it was quite extraordinary to be having a conversation with someone who didn't know about this story and and again, while I talk about the behaviors when my family would talk about it and the pain involved in it, there were also good stories right there were also good stories about how they piggybacked each other you know those if, if, if one a family member wasn't so well, then you know grandpa would carry him and one of the one of the stories we know is he carried one of his cousins from the bungalow to Jay Creek now that's like two hundred kilometers on his back, covered his carried his cousin. So our families, even in those areas, knew who their families were. This one is obviously specific to the Alice Springs context and the Central Australian context. But even in amongst that, there were these incredible stories of how we were able to, as families, gather and bond with each other, those that were able to stay connected. For many families, that never happened again. When I think about how the conversation has changed, I think, yes, I am encouraged when I hear that people now go, actually, I made a mistake. But here's what I know. And here's what I remember at the time. Whenever we get a win in the media, and when I say win, we actually get our voices heard and genuine perspective about what might be happening and how the marginalization of our lives is intrinsic to that. Without fail, we get a big hit, right? The media comes back at us. We never get it for very long. And I'm sitting here reflecting, thinking that's still the case. If we get something positive through the next day, what comes is nasty.
1: Janine, I'm wondering about your reflections on that. And especially since you shared, reminded us of Annie Lawich's own story. And I guess I was thinking about the fact that a copy of the apology was sent to every school in Australia. And I wonder in all of that if you could also share your reflections on what you think the role of our education system is in making sure these stories are heard
3: well i know in the case of of the death and destruction that happened in germany with the jews there's been a, a real targeted and resourced advancement of people understanding that historical truth telling in schools from a very young age right up into the university system So I think it has to be a systemic approach. Look, I know of the work that I did with the Congress of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives. I was the CEO there for a while and we worked with nurses and midwives to help them understand our profession's compliance in removing our kids and that that continues to today. So with the leadership of many mainstream nursing and midwifery organisations We embedded cultural safety into our practice standards, into our education standards, and then into into legislation. And that's just toe-in-the-water stuff, I believe. But there has been precedent set where a profession, and I believe the psychology professions, have also apologised. So there's much to be done, but unless it happens in a systemic way and it's beyond personalities, good people leave. But when it's embedded in legislation and into standards, then we have a hope that it will continue on.
1: Paul, from your perspective and with the work that you do and and your training as well, your professional training, what does truth-telling mean for members of the Stolen Generations and for their children?
0: I think we see that and we saw it on the day with what it meant to Stolen Generations survivors wherever they were at the apology, that validation of their experience. So we know that, that having that acknowledgement is an important part of moving towards healing, and we know, you know, we know how important that is. I think part of the challenge too is that many Stolen Generation survivors that we talk to and work with are so, so acutely aware of how their experiences continue to affect them in their physical health, in their social and emotional well-being, And also how they see it ripple down the generations through their descendants. And they're really keen to be able to stop that transmission. And they recognize the importance of healing, not just about in their own lives, but what healing means for their children, for their grandchildren, for their great-grandchildren. And it's that real holistic well-being kind of challenge. And the apology, I think, is the first step of that is acknowledging that wrongdoing. But as everyone has kind of mentioned, as Catherine and Janine have mentioned, it only goes somewhere if there's also a response, if there's also the uh, reparations are put in place, the the services that they need. And I think that's where things have not been dedicated enough at this point in time.
1: I want to dig into that a little bit more because it's a point that you've all raised. Uh, Catherine, obviously one of the things that is a part of the redress is reparations or compensation. But from your perspective, what else is needed around that? I think that speaks to um, the truth-telling part, actually. So, yes,
2: we need that. Well, actually, it's more than that. It is, the, it is making sure that families genuinely have the services that they need and, and acknowledging that some of what we're seeing, and that's the outcomes in education in early childhood, um, in our health and wellbeing, are absolutely directly linked to policies of assimilation and the ongoing impacts of that. We also need greater awareness and this is where I guess that systemic change links into the truth-telling piece. In order to be able to do that as a country, we needed a rhetoric that told people they were doing the right thing, and that is extraordinarily hard to unpick because it means what we see is systemic bias in every decision made about us as Aboriginal people and that lack of awareness that uh, what we are carrying, you know, genetically programmed trauma, not only our memories that are hurtful, but genetically programmed trauma to everything. So we walk into a room with a level of heightened um, I guess, vulnerability that no one else other than another Aboriginal person or Torres Strait Islander person could hope to comprehend. So we do need greater understanding of what, what it is, um, how it, it could be potentially uh, managed in mainstream service delivery, but also in working with our Aboriginal community controlled sector to say, you know, we know that these are what we the, what we're seeing at this moment is a result of this, and in order to be able to respond to this, this is how we think we need to do how we need to move, and we need to root that in what we understand about ke- keeping our families strong, and that is sixty thousand years of understanding how to work with our own mob, so there is a significant need to recognize our own ways of doing really in all of this, and a significant need for that genuine truth telling to say this is why we respond like this and this is why you as non-Indigenous people are responding to us in that manner.
1: Janine, in various roles that you've had, um, you have been involved in looking at the Close the Gap um, indicators and watching uh, how the the goal to close the gap has fared. I wonder what your reflection is now that we're having another reboot on that and then growing on from that about your view about how the Close the Gap um, initiatives have gone so far. What is the implication from your perspective, you touched on this before, of not closing the gap for our members of the Stolen Generations?
3: Well, I think that the biggest implication is that the urgency, you know, many of our members of the stolen generation that began this movement with us, like Aunty, um Barbara Cummings, Uncle Archie, Uncle Jack Charles, these people are passing on, you know, without seeing um, the recompense that they asked for. And of course, you know, the stolen generation's report, all of those uh, recommendations that have been made. Um, haven't come to fruition, you know, like the um, deaths in custody report where we're still waiting on on governments to respond to that. Um, You know, the work with the Coalition of Peaks really is, you know, for governments to listen and to not repeat the wrongs of the past and to implement true reform and to invest in Aboriginal community-controlled health sectors um, and to understand that these past policies um, I, I really struggle to call them child protection because they're not protecting our kids. Uh, they're removing our kids. Uh, as we've already heard, these practices were developed um, not for non-Indigenous people in this country. Historical truth telling reminds us that they were developed for Aboriginal people on the premise that we were bad parents and uh, that belief still persists uh, persist in, you know, this ritualism of the workforce and we see that in the outcomes Um, So, yeah, you know, the the work of the Coalition of Peaks, of course, is about partnership, is about um, investing in Aboriginal community control. Um, It's also about um, accessing data so that we can be accountable um, to the outcomes that we set ourselves um, and so that services can actually, you know, see what's happening in their communities and do good planning. Um, But I think, you know, the, the biggest part of the Close the Gap reform is, um, yeah, the reform of the government systems, the child protection system in Australia.
1: Paul, I just wondered if you had any thoughts to share on that as well. And then I was just wondering if you could then also share your thoughts on you know, one thing, the thing that's a recurring theme through the conversation so far is the ongoing impact of the removal policy. It seems to me that the concept of intergenerational trauma is something that we inherently knew about through experience, but now we 're starting to understand more deeply and wonder what your thoughts are on on how we address that and particularly through the close the gap strategy
0: look I think uh, for me, particularly with the refresh of close the gap uh, and and the national agreement, I am most interested in seeing how governments move forward um, in genuine partnership with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. With you know real agreement making between governments and communities, and making sure that that it's not just uh, you know some sort of new facade for government consultation and participation. Now I know that that's not what um, that's not how our communities see it, um, but I know from you know the work that I've done uh, in, in the past um, that that can be a real challenge for for how we engage with governments, and we've often got to keep pulling them along, um, to remember that we're not, we're not doing things the old way anymore. Um, we're, if this is going to work, then we need to have those priority reform elements. And that's why they were you know, drawn out and made so important. Um, we've got to have them at the, at the heart. We've got to have that partnership and, and shared decision-making. We've got to have, um, transform, that transformation of government services, uh, and, and put communities in the driver 's seat of how they are delivered and the services that are delivered um, we 've got to address the existing data challenges, and so often our communities are sadly in the dark about um, key issues because that, that you know we ask for for key bits of data and it 's just not collected. We ask about uh, what 's happening for um, our young mums who are often having infants removed and it 's so hard to draw out. Key bits of data. It's so hard to draw out data about um, our parents with disability who are often targeted by child protection and child policing systems. Um, so, we've got to make sure that that data is in the hands of communities so that our communities can uh, drive those solutions and, and be supported by the data um, because then, obviously, that, that gives us a much stronger footing. I mean, we know what's happening in our communities, um, but often in our advocacy, we're undermined because we can't point to the hard numbers. Um, so, so those data elements uh, need to be there. So I think those are the things that I'm I'm most looking forward to as we see the policy partnerships take form, and uh, I'm involved in a couple of those. I think that'll be a good indicator of just how genuine governments at the state and the Commonwealth level are about really dismantling and transforming these systems and embracing new approaches. On, regarding that point to, to, of uh, intergenerational trauma, look, The literature on this is, is really quite clear. And, you know, Catherine mentioned some of those, uh, issues, uh, previously, and we know when it comes to these issues of, of healing in this context, we need, uh, multi-generational approaches. And, and we know that there's a whole range of approaches that we can put in place. We know there's a lot of things that, a lot of action we can take to heal, but we have to remember too that within that, um, the structures of that are so important. And I think, you know, to date, what I've noticed is a lot of the attempts to heal are still within the same institutions and the same processes that cause the harm. There seems to be this view of governments that those institutions can be redeemed and can, can be part of the healing. But I would argue, and certainly many have argued that they are part of the ongoing trauma. And so, in a sense, the trauma is intergenerational, but it's also new in every generation. And so, to me, that's why it's really important that we address not only the the healing elements and bringing them home. Talked about addressing the social determinants of risk, but we also address the political determinants. And I think that's you know that's a key challenge moving forward. That the closing the gap national agreement has tried to address. There's a whole lot of conversations about how we address the political determinants, but it's such an important part of actually delivering healing for our communities and changing the trajectory of these systems.
1: Fifteen years on from the apology to the stolen generations, we know that First Nations children today are disproportionately represented in the out-of-home care sector. Catherine, when you're asked why is that the case, how do you explain this disturbing trend?
2: Oh look that's an easy one, $36 billion goes into the child protection system, $36 billion a year. Of that $36 billion, the vast majority goes into child removal. I think it's something like only $16 million of those dollars actually goes into early intervention and prevention, so that is what your families actually need in order to keep them safe. So that is a fundamental flaw. And in amongst that, so when you look at those numbers, the numbers of children, that increasing number of children, the majority of those children, the vast majority, are actually looked after by non-Indigenous entities. What we see when there are Aboriginal community-controlled responses to our families and our children, those removals stop. They stop. And families improve. Not only do they improve in in their ability to be strong enough to look after their families, but you will also see changes in the number of tertiary interventions that a family might come into. But, so there is a significant need to radically transform the system. And you know, we we don't like words like system, but again, I was I was thinking if I if I could tie it back to some of the conversation that that Paul just had and Janine just had. You know, those priority reforms, I remember when the consultations were being done, every single consultation, those four priority reforms were identified by every single group. So that is how well aware Aboriginal people are of what needs to change and why they need to change it. So I'll give you an example here in the territory we know that our the number of our children hitting juvenile detention systems is escalating we know that pretty much every child in the juvenile justice system is aboriginal we also know that it's not until they hit that system that the government is able to bring in the resources and say hey Guess what? There was an underlying developmental need here that was never addressed. It gets us back to the lack of services and the lack of services investment that are needed for our families to be able to thrive. And again, access to data, right? Paul spoke really carefully about the access to data piece. So I'll give you an actual example. Here in the Northern Territory, where our children quite regularly removed because their families are unable to access services to support vulnerable children, There are kids out in the bush who under NDIS would be able to draw down a million dollars a year and additional supports. Their need is so high and not a single dollar is drawn down because the families and the community don't have the information or the data that tells them, guess what? With a million dollars, you would be able to fly your specialist in. We would be able to train your family, those sorts of things. And if you had a community... That say had five children, all capable of drawing down a million dollars a year in support because their needs are so high. What would happen? What would happen if that community had been given that information to say, these are the dollars that can go into your community to ensure your families thrive?
0: Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law, and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio.
1: This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories too. In 2008, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd delivered the National Apology to the Stolen Generations, an acknowledgement of the First Nations children removed from their families under government assimilation policies. This week, our panel of experts reflect on the significance of this moment and the state of Indigenous child protection today. We'll return to the conversation shortly, but right now, some music from the late Uncle Archie Roach.
4: Down city streets I would roam I had no bed, I had no home Crawled out of bushes early morn Used newspapers to keep me warm Then I'd have to score a drink Start me up, help me to think Down city streets I would roam Use my fingers as it goes In those days when I was young Drinking and fighting was no fun It was daily living for me I had no choice, it was meant to Down city streets I would go. I had no bed, I had no home. There was nothing that I owned. have children of my own Now I have something I call my own These are my children And this is my home I look around And understand How street kids feel when they put them Down these streets I would
1: That's Uncle Archie Roach with Down City Streets. The song was written by his late wife, Ruby Hunter, and tells us of the all-too-common experience of Indigenous urban disadvantage.
0: This is Speaking Out.
1: That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country.
0: On ABC Radio.
1: It's been 15 years since the national apology to the stolen generations. My guests on speaking out this week are CEO of the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Childcare or Snake, Catherine Little; CEO of the Lowitcher Institute, Janine Muhammad; and Associate Professor at the Jumbana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research and Co-Chair of the National Family Matters Campaign, Paul Gray. Paul, people often say that there is no formal removal policy but the statistics show that something's clearly wrong with the system and Catherine's articulated a range of issues and I wonder from your perspective what are some of the systemic barriers to preventing the change that we need in in this situation?
0: Sure and and look as Catherine said uh, the child protection or the the challenge of child removals is a really complex issue Um, but it's also one that we know a fair bit about we've had uh, you know. A, a, a whole litany of, uh, a whole series of reviews and reports and inquiries. Um, so, we know that poverty and inequality play a huge role in children coming to the attention of child protection systems and facing removal. And we know that the burden of poverty uh, is disproportionately carried by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And so, and this is why, as I said, the Bringing Them Home report was really clear about having a social justice package to address those issues, those social determinants that drive uh, engagement with the child protection system. We also know, uh, and, and I won't go into uh, uh, Catherine's point around the fact that only 16% of investment in child protection goes to actual uh, preservation and support of families. That That is a huge structural issue that needs to be addressed. But we also know that um, when Aboriginal families come to the attention of child protection systems. They are uh, subject to tools that are not valid for our families. We're, we're subject to assessment processes that that we know entrench discrimination. So tools like the, the structured decision-making approach that they use here in New South Wales, um, we know that that entrenches uh, the likelihood of our families being considered to be at high or very high risk of harm. And so we know the tools themselves entrench some of that bias. And I think that's part of, you know, it's it's challenges like that. In addition to the fact that then when we try to put supports in place, we're much more likely, the supports that do exist, um, although underfunded, are much more likely to be based on models that are designed and validated with non-Indigenous communities. And we're expected to just make them work with our communities um, despite, you know, massive cultural differences. Um, and we know from the evidence where these things have been implemented before that they underperform for our families. And so we have this uh, massive burden of poverty, which leads to greater notifications. And then in response to those notifications, we're, likely, we're more likely to see Aboriginal families um, subject to greater intervention and, ha- and have access to supports that don't help them. Um, so those are, those are huge uh, issues of those challenges. And, and as I said earlier, I think the other one that bears repeating is that these systems themselves drive removals. So an independent review here a few years ago in New South Wales made it really clear that children and young people who are in out-of-home care are 10 times more likely to face the removal of their own children as adults. Note, that's a really worrying finding And one that we perhaps really need to reflect on and think about whether or not our interventions are actually addressing the problem or whether or not we're just kicking it down the road another generation and trying to pick up those pieces later. I mean, when do we actually get to a system that addresses that cycle rather than just keeps perpetuating it? Janine, I want to
1: ask you a question in this area from a different perspective that feeds into... The enormous amount of work you've done at the coalface, and really sort of focus on the question of well-being. In a way, from your perspective, why has it been so important to keep Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children connected with their culture? And in your work, when you've seen that reconnection, what is the transformative change?
3: Yeah, so, of course, the cultural determinants is the work of Professor Ray Lovett um, and, you know, he'd socialised this idea of researching the cultural determinants, which we've, of course, as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people have known how important that is for many, many uh, millennia. Um, and, of course, he couldn't get funding uh, for this research. So the Larch Institute, of course, understood what he was trying to do and the impact of culture um, on our our health outcomes and of course the impact of the unaddressed social determinants such as housing employment mental health um, and of course you know racism in the health system so the work in itself really speaks to when um, we have cultural revitalization cultural practice that our health outcomes improve um and now, and we've heard today or on the course of us discuss- our discussions, particularly you paul, have you know raised how culture and um has seen you know um really great outcomes for aboriginal and Torres Strait islander peoples so Professor Ray Lovett's work actually does focus on um a group of uh, people that work on country um, and the health outcomes they experience by being able to participate in community-led, um, community uh, cultural revitalisation projects. And those outcomes have been um, quite amazing, those health outcomes. Equally as much, on the flip side of that, when people experience racism or their culture and identity is put uh, you know into question um, and when they work in systems that don't um, acknowledge Culture and the cultural determinants of health, and um, we have poor health outcomes.
1: This week has seen the conversation around the reflection of the apology 15 years on, the importance of honouring our stolen generations mixed in with the the sort of the topic of the year, which is the voice to parliament, uh, including um, Minister Burney starting the week by reflecting on the fact that people who walked out of the parliament regretted it. And that was a a comment um, that you also made, Catherine, um, an observation that you made. And from your perspective, um, Catherine, what is the importance of the idea of representation when it comes to Indigenous policy?
2: Yeah, you know, um, I, I like a lot of people have gone on a bit of a journey with this one. So, you know, uh, uh, when it, when when the um, conversations that underpinned it were happening, right? They were happening in, you know, my nana's country, but we we had ceremony, we had ceremony, and really, my my focus at that point in time was maintenance of ceremony, maintenance of song, and here's the irony of that: that is all voice maintenance of ceremony and maintenance of song is the maintenance of your voice the ability to talk for your country and to represent your mob that is that is ceremony so um, that was going on and um, that was where my priority was and, and you know I don't know if, how much everyone on the line knows about these processes but they are they are very strict and very few things go out of whack, right? Nothing, and, and it's very old and you're surrounded by a William family and and the tools that your ancestors left for you and, and your ancestors are all hanging out with you as well. And it, it is just the most wonderful thing. And um, anyhow, in the midst of being in the middle of nowhere, and I mean the middle of nowhere, these helicopters flew in. So I don't know if you can even imagine the juxtaposition of being in the middle of the nowhere uh, for ceremony and in flies a couple of helicopters. And those helicopters came to get some of the family and these family, senior, senior, senior people, right, our cultural leads, the people that we follow who tell us how to behave. Um, And they jumped in those helicopters to go and dance for, for the statement uh, which, of course, the the voice was a, a fundamental part of. And in watching mob understand why that was important to them, it made me think about these things a bit differently. And it occurred to me that some of the things we're seeing at this moment in time come down to how different nations perceive things um, and our ability to even communicate um our how we I mean, communication is, is, is a is an ongoing challenge for all Aboriginal people because we use our language differently, we use our words differently. So for example, if you were to go out to my mob, um, either here at home or on the lands, and you were to say to them, You mob wanna talk for your country, you mob need to talk for your country, I reckon you'd get a resounding yes. I, I would put money on it, you know, and I can't talk for everyone because that would not be the right thing. But when things are described in the language that we understand, then you get a different response. And it made me really pivot on these things. So I had that that cultural change in my head, right? If my nanas and my cultural leaders are saying this is important, I might need to lean in more. And uh, the other thing I've learned in working in policy, because this is what I do day in, day out, uh, particularly the priority reforms and those big policy partnerships that Paul pointed to, we can only get so far. We can only get so far because, at the end of the day, these things are all subject to government priorities of the day and they are set by people, by broader Australians and political directives. So anything that happens is at the whim. Of governments, And if you want a practical example of that, look at what is happening in Alice Springs right now. Decades and decades of policy failure where governments come in and rip in policy, rip out policy, come out with a new idea. None of it informed by Aboriginal voice. If we had a voice and it was constitutionally enshrined, it wouldn't matter which government was in, in power on that day. They could not override our say and they could make it so that we could speak And again, for a practical example of that and why we need it to back in things like the priority reforms, we're currently looking at legislation being proposed on the territory, for the territory, without a single conversation with mob on the ground as to whether or not it will work or it could be needed or how it might work really well if it was needed. Not a single conversation on the ground.
1: Paul, what are your thoughts? And I'm particularly interested. Obviously, a referendum on a voice to change is to change the national stage. Child protection is ostensibly a state issue. The child protection agencies uh, are state based, and we have our community controlled organisations um um at at the state level, play an active role in that, although we obviously have the leadership of snake at the national level. what's your view on the voice to parliament and how it makes a difference on the ground?
0: I think for me, at the center of this whole conversation is really and and what I'm hearing from um, you know people that I've been talking to is that this is really about what's the nature of the relationship between uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and governments. Um, and and I think certainly for for the communities that I've been engaged with and the work that we've done in child protection um, and family policing is that we're our communities and our families are tired of being on the receiving end of someone else's policy pronouncements, of someone else saying, this is what's best for you and this is what's best for your kids. And... You know, we're tired of that regardless of how uh, benevolent those enacting those policies feel that they are being uh, in those policies. And that was true with the whole suite of policies that we refer to as the Stolen Generations, and it's true now. Um, we're we're tired of being subject uh, and being told what's best for us. Um, and so I think, you know, in the child protection space we've been – and. And in Aboriginal affairs more broadly, for a very long time, we've been talking about, and our communities have been saying, uh, we want to shape our own future. Um, we we want to be the ones in the driver's seat. We we are the ones who carry the uh, the impact. You know, the positive or the negative. We're the ones that are left carrying um, what what's the result of these policies. So we should be the ones setting them. Um, so I think you know on on the on that state level we're we're mostly focused on, look how do we have how do we change the relationship with state governments so that we so that Aboriginal communities are the ones setting these uh, setting the agenda so that Aboriginal communities are the ones being able to uh, design and deliver and administer uh, local solutions that we know are going to work for our families. I mean on the on the broader national question and perhaps this is a bit of a cop out but. I'm mindful that in my mind this feels more like a question for non-indigenous Australians. All our entire community could vote for, could vote against and it could not sway the the national conversation one way or the other because we're such a small percentage of the voting population. So I think for me I'm looking at this conversation and looking more to what others are saying and thinking what sort of what sort of modern country does Australia want to be? What what am I hearing? from other Australians about how they think about um, the position of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here on our own country. And, and I'm paying a lot of attention to that uh, and how much that's moved, if it has moved, from, from past conversations from the 70s, from the 1930s. So, you know, maybe maybe that's a bit of a cop-out, but I've been looking very carefully at some of those conversations.
1: My guests have been the CEO of the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Childcare, or SNAKE, Catherine Little, CEO of the Lowitcher Institute, Janine Muhammad, and Associate Professor at the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research, and Co Chair of the National Family Matters Campaign, Paul Gray.
5: Be kind, my darling It'll only be a while The sky gets dark But the moon, she's my friend And the stars that fill the sky Tell stories of past and present The trees whistle tune So tune. Now I
1: the show for this week. Join us again next week when we continue our focus on Indigenous child protection 15 years on from the National Apology to the Stolen Generations. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.